Well, as most of us know, uh, Tommy Cook uh, passed away earlier this uh, morning, and we do extend our sympathies to uh, Joan and the family. There will be a family worship in North Keswick Free Church on Tuesday at half past seven. We can begin our service by singing from Psalm 100 in the Scottish Psalter, and the tune is Old 100. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. We'll stand and sing the whole psalm. we give thanks we can have our meeting tonight and we do pray for your blessing as we do. Uh, we thank you Lord that we um, come in with different um, needs from yourself and we do pray that uh, you would meet them out of your resources and we thank you that one of the channels in which your resources come to us is through your living word. 
and we pray that that uh, word of yours would affect our minds as well as our hearts, that we would, as you tell us frequently, that we would increase in our grasp of what your word says, but equally important that our affections uh, would also grow because the reality is there's no limit to how much we can love the Savior. And we thank you that uh, listening to passages about him uh, enlarges our minds, but also enlarges our affections. And we ask, Lord, as we go through this service, there will be a constant interaction between us and him because although we cannot see him and we have no idea of what the world is like in which he currently is as far as glory is concerned yet we um, know that he is not far that he is close and that the spirit the Holy Spirit can make that um, interaction with him into a real living connection. And therefore, we ask that we would have that tonight, that you yourself would be the bridge between heaven and earth, and that our experience would be uh, heavenly. We thank you, Lord, that is possible, that in the world of sin in which we live, as another has said, heaven can come down and glory fill our souls. So Lord, we pray that we would experience that here from your word. We ask you, Lord, to remember us according to our needs, and we do pray for those who are mourning uh, that you would uh, remember them and we thank you for the hope uh, that we have when one of your people pass away and they go to the father's house and there they are with um, with you and in ways that we don't fully grasp they meet they meet with Jesus and and that is the wonderful place in which they are, and they are with your people, those they knew on earth, but also the many millions that they had never met before. And we thank you, Lord, for the reality of heaven and for the fact that it's a, a more real world than the one that we are currently in. And sometimes we are prone to think the other way. But the reality is that this current visible world is the world of shadows. And the real world is the world that at the moment is out of sight. But we thank you that the fact that it is out of sight does not mean it is not there. And therefore, help us to be heavenly minded and to be filling our thoughts with the reality of the eternal world, the world that is currently 
been experienced by billions of our fellow creatures who once lived down here. And they are in your presence, all of them uh, perfect in holiness and having been received into glory. We pray then that we will be, as your word exhorts us, to be followers of them who are now inheriting the promises. Lord, we pray you be with us as we start another week, and we do ask that our time together tonight would help us for that. None of us knows what lies ahead, but we thank you that in secret ways as well as in um, overt ways, you can prepare us for whatever it is to come. And we just ask you, Lord, that you'd be doing that and that this time together would um, help us. We pray for those who are not able to be here for whatever reason, some not well, but others away. And we just commit them all to you, and we ask you just to bless them all where they are. So remember us in this service. Remember the children who are here, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak to them from your word as well. So bless us, Lord, as we are here, for your own name's sake. Amen. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question, but what psalms did Jesus sing most often? And well, we don't know what psalms he might have sung uh, on um, everyday occasions. We do know the ones that would be sung when you adapt to the temple feasts. And uh, one of them is Psalm 122. So we can sing that one just now from Sing Psalms, and the tune is Sussex. Psalms 120 to 134 were always sung at the feasts. So he'd have sung this one frequently. To the Lord's house they were calling, and with joy I went with them. Now at last our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. We'll stand and sing the whole psalm.
Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And may God bless that reading. Uh, we can now sing another psalm from that same collection, 120 to 134, and we can sing Psalm 133. From Sing Psalms, and the tune is Eastgate. How excellent a thing it is, how pleasant and how good, when brothers dwell in unity, 
and live as brothers should. We can stand and sing the whole psalm. We can turn back to the passage we read there, Isaiah 53, and I'd like us to think about the first line of verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. Most people have some place they would like to see. Perhaps some immigrants go abroad and they tell their children and their grandchildren what the old home was like. And eventually uh, their descendants make their way to wherever their predecessors came from and take a look at it. And it may be the case that they will be pleased with what they see or they may not be pleased. Because after all, it is possible for the original immigrants uh, to have a... um, perhaps a false awareness of what the place was like by the time they had told the story of it. But as I say, the descendants might want to go there, and when they get there, well, 
they might find it's not what they thought it would be. When I was um, growing up, I wanted to see the Grand Canyon. I suppose lots of people want to see the Grand Canyon. So initially I thought it would be quite good to see it from 33,000 feet up. The only problem is when you're that high you don't see very much because all the contours start to get flattened. So it didn't do much good looking out an airplane window to see what it was like. Then um, one day I went there and my memory of it was my brain is far too small to get all in. Enormous. Everywhere you turned your eyes was the sun shining on it. Just opened up numerous vistas to stare down. But, as I said, it was impossible for me to take it all in. And since that is the case, looking back, I don't remember too much about it. I suppose the question could be asked, what would Jesus want to see? What filled his desires? Most of all, there were obviously lots of things he wanted to say and do, but what did he want most? Because this verse indicates that there is something that's going to satisfy him when he sees it. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. The implication is, isn't it, that prior to seeing this, He's not fully satisfied. That there's something ahead of him connected to his anguish. And whatever this something is, it's going to satisfy him. Of course, there are other questions we could ask as well as what will satisfy him? We could ask, where will it happen? Or we could also ask, when will it happen? And we could also ask, how long will it last for? Will it ever become, in his case, a distant memory. Like my memory of the Grand Canyon. So we can think about uh, these things as we look at this uh, statement. There's something unusual about the statement. 
And what's unusual about the statement is it doesn't tell us what he will see. Does it? It just says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Don't know if you read books about the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they're quite fascinating documents. And if you go to Israel, there's museums there dedicated to them. And among the scrolls are chapters from the Old Testament. And in the scrolls that uh, include Isaiah 53, they do have something in this line. And what they have is, and some Bible translations adopt it, what they have in their statement is, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see the light and be satisfied. And not only does the Dead Sea Scrolls have that, but the Greek version of the Old Testament has it. So there, these people would say that perhaps the two little words, the light, has some or other dropped out. And there are certain attractions about the idea of the light. Because, after all, in this experience that he's going through, he's in darkness. As he was in anguish, and part of his anguish was that there was no light. And therefore, it is possible that that is the meaning of this verse. That out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see the light and be satisfied. And of course, when he came out on the resurrection day and then ascended to glory. And you know, Jesus will never again be where there's no glory. Up in heaven, where he is at the moment, it's full of glory. And when he returns to this world on the day of judgment, he will come in glory. And in the ages to come after that, he and his people will be glorified. And glory will just mark the entire history of the new heavens and new earth. So, we could easily understand why someone would go along with the suggestion that the two words that should be in here are the light. On the other hand, someone could easily say that somebody just added them because they thought they should put something in, because there is a certain sense by putting in the words, the light, you're actually confining the meaning. And maybe it's deliberately on left wide open in purpose that we can just say that whatever he will see, 
will satisfy him. And that sights, well, if it's limitless in its range, it opens up for us all kinds of suggestions. And perhaps the most uh, common suggestion that has been made is that he will see the fruit of his sufferings. And of course, within the fruit of his sufferings, uh, we could say there's the entire experience of the endless ages still to come. And that throughout it all, satisfied forever and ever. And of course, that's a stark contrast to what the verse starts with. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. So the person singing the song, and it is a song, in one line goes from a dirge to a song of praise. From a lament to a statement of exceeding delight. Something wonderful. Transformation. Stranford's transformation that was instantaneous and prolonged. For him. For Jesus. He had his desires when he was here on earth. As he says at the Lord's Supper, with desire have I desired to eat this with you before I suffer. But he had desires also on the cross. And of course, Psalm 22 tells us that. Because the first half of the psalm, from verse 1 to verse 21, tells us about his anguish. But the remaining verses tells us what he saw. Or what he has still seen. As time goes by. So we can just think of a couple of things. His anguish. And then secondly, the satisfying sight. What can that be? And then some applications. Anguish is a terrible word, isn't it? Whatever else it means, it's never a word that says that something is light. It's far stronger than lots of other words. Anguish has got the, the stress of combining something physical with something internal. It's a word that's all impressive. It affects our thinking and it affects our affections. It's a word that describes 
intensity of feeling. Somebody said to us that they were in great anguish without being um, too pernickety. We could say to them, you don't need the word great. The word anguish by itself tells us the awfulness of the experience. We cannot have anguish that is not great. If whatever we have requires that word great to be put into it, then anguish is not fully understood. So here's Jesus, and out of the anguish of his experience, He's going to see this light. Now here in Isaiah 53, as we know, he has experienced several terrible things. But not all of them would be the anguish. He has been derided. He has been despised. He has been rejected. People have turned away their faces from him. They have indicated to him, as it says there in verse 3, they don't want to speak to him. But while that is an awful experience, he could still turn to his heavenly Father and say, you are with me. His physical uh, pain was terrible. He was wounded. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. The intensity of his sufferings, who can possibly estimate? But the sufferings that people could see were not the soul of his suffering. The man that was crucified beside him, he might have been, and he certainly was, in terrible pain. But as he hung there on the cross, he had the hope of glory. And yet, he, as he was rejoicing in the amazing promise that he had heard from the lips of Jesus when he said to him, today you will be with me in paradise as he heard these wonderful words of assurance spoken by the, the one who is the eternal word. Within a couple of hours, that converted criminal was right beside Jesus as he went through the anguish that is described here. When even the 
physical sun refused to shine. And the darkness came down that was um, indicating divine displeasure. And there, in the middle of that, it doesn't seem, it's not in the middle, it's at the end of it, because the, the darkness doesn't, as it were, start at zero and go up and then come down. I mean, that's not what the words of Jesus indicate. They go up and up and up and up, or down, 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 whatever one it is. And it's when at the end of the three hours that he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that was the time of his anguish. These three hours of darkness. No obvious sign that God was ever going to come to his help again. The one who had been his constant companion, as he said to his disciples, you will all forsake me, yet my father is with me. For the time came when he had to cry to his father, why have you forsaken me? And these words, the word forsaken. Well, what does it mean? It means forsaken. He wasn't mistaken in his assessment. I mean, that would be to give a terrible assessment of the ability of Jesus to think. Since he is the eternal word, he always knows the right word to say. And if he says he's forsaken, it's not up to us to try to minimize it. We accept even if we don't understand it, we accept the truthfulness of his words. And there he is, anguish. The anguish of his soul. And there he is, a man, a real man. How does he cope? Well, coping usually has to do with the issue that's causing the problem. And in order to cope in difficult situations, we need extra input. So how did the Savior cope with this? Um, awful time. And the answer is the one who helped him to cope all the time. And the one who helped him to cope all the time was the Holy Spirit. He tells us that often. 
How did he do his miracles? If I, by the Holy Spirit, cast them out, the demons and so on. And the Holy Spirit was there at the cross, helping the Savior, strengthening the Savior, bringing to the Savior's mind the, I suppose, in some extent, Psalm 22. Because why else would he quote it? And he just came out with it. George Smeaton tells us this about the sufferings of Jesus. Smeaton was a free church theologian of the 19th century. But he says this about where Jesus offered himself by the eternal spirit, he offered himself without spot to God. How did he do it by the eternal spirit? The meaning is that the Son of God, moved and animated by the Holy Ghost, offered himself without spot as an atoning sacrifice. The Spirit rendered him an unspotted sacrifice. The Spirit discovered to him the inflexible claims of God, God's justice. There on the cross, the Spirit discovered to him the inflexible claims of God, as well as inflamed him with such love to man and zeal for God as prompted him to go forward in spite of every hindrance, pain, and difficulty to effect the world's redemption. So the darkness starts at 12 o'clock. What happens at five past 12? The Spirit helps them. Ten past twelve. And in between. The Spirit helps them. One o'clock. And in between. Two o'clock. And in between. Up until three o'clock. He's discovering the whole time, according to Smeaton, the inflexible claims of God. And at the same time, by the Spirit, he is inflamed. Not inflamed. Inflamed. It's coming from inside. Inflamed him with such love to man and seal for God as prompted him to go forward to keep on going in spite of every hindrance, pain, and difficulty to effect the world's redemption. The Holy Spirit, in a word, filled his mind with the unflagging ardor, ardor, zeal, and love which led him to complete the sacrifice. That's his anguish. But of course, Jesus knew Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 53, as well as he knew Psalm 22. And he knew that verse 11 was there. 
and out of the anguish of his soul. Now, some people read that as suggesting that it's while he was in the anguish <clears throat> that he saw his seed. That's not what it means. It means as a, con as a consequence of his anguish, he saw what he wanted to see. And it satisfied him. So what is a satisfying sight? Well, I kind of hinted at that earlier. It's everything he sees from then on. There's no doubt that he'd be very satisfied with seeing the criminal beside him. This man who's bound for glory. What amazing privilege that man had. But Jesus, he's entered into the journey of endless satisfaction. And his soul goes to heaven from Calvary goes to the world of bliss. And what satisfaction that would be for him as he goes there. I mean, when he said to the criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise, he didn't mean to the criminal that you'll be with my body in paradise. Because his body would not be in paradise. But he did say, you'll be with me as my Human spirit is in paradise. In heaven, afterwards, his ascension. Well, what a satisfying day for Jesus that was. Ascending to the throne of God. Of course, he had always been there as God. But he ascended as the God-man. And his humanity went where humans had never gone before. Right to the very top. And go no higher. Satisfied. Now the word that's translated satisfied here means to be satiated. It doesn't mean contentment. It's got a meaning of fullness to it. That the it's the kind of word that somebody would have after they've had a huge meal. And each part of the meal was um, just exactly as it should be in the first course and the second course and whatever many courses there were. All of them would contribute to the overall satisfaction. And Jesus has got full satisfaction. And as he's, on, as he's on the throne of glory tonight, he's fully satisfied. He's up there. And even as his anguish was intense, so is his satisfaction. Even as we have no idea of how intense his anguish was, 
we have no idea how intense his satisfaction is. He is delighted. He is pleased. His joy knows no bounds. That is where he is. And of course, it is important for us to note who is actually pointing to this. It's the same one who said at the start of the song there in Isaiah 52, Behold my servant. And he's led us down through all these different verses saying, Behold him, behold him. But now behold him in his satisfaction. And when each of his people cross the river and find themselves in his presence. And no doubt they could sing at the end of Psalm 17, I shall be satisfied when I awake with his likeness. But it's nothing like the satisfaction of Christ. The price he paid for each of them to get there, he sees his reward. And he's full of joy, constantly, extraordinarily. And the Heavenly Father observes this, as he tells us in that verse. It's the Father that's speaking there. Because he says there, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. So the Heavenly Father rejoices in the satisfaction of Jesus. And of course, ahead of him, well, what is ahead of him? Endless satisfaction. You know, there's that verse in Hebrews chapter 12, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. But the joy that is set before him is not a one-off event. The joy that was set before him is not just his resurrection and not just his ascension, but it's the entire future. Going on forever and ever. And of course, if he is satisfied with us, Surely we should be satisfied with him. I mean, he doesn't ever say, I wish I hadn't gone to the cross for that person. He just fills him with joy, every one of them, and he sees them coming closer and closer to the heavenly world. Life, as they say, all depends on how you view it. How should the life of a Christian be viewed? They're getting closer and closer to their destination. And when they get to their destination, they will see the satisfied Jesus. One of the people who had most insight into that was Rutherford, of course. 
And I was reading this from one of his letters. And I'm just going to read it. He says this. When we shall come home and enter to the possession of our brother's fair kingdom, and when our heads shall find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, and when we shall look back to pains and sufferings, then shall we see life and sorrow to be less than one step or stride from a prison to glory. And that our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. Oh, what then shall be the weight of every one of Christ's kisses? Oh, how weighty and of what worth shall be every one of Christ's love smiles be? The satisfaction of Jesus. Of course, he prayed for it, didn't he? There in John 17. And it's, <clears throat> in a certain sense, it's extraordinary words. Father, I will. It doesn't mean I wish. It's Father, I demand that those whom you have given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus wants for all of his people. But he also wants it for each of his people. And he prayed for that shortly before he went to the cross. It's amazing, isn't it? There he is. The one of infinite wisdom who with one thought could create a billion universes and who is fully able at any given time to produce instantaneously what could satisfy his divine mind. And yet, what satisfies him is his people. And with um, going back to the Grand Canyon, if I went there every day, it would soon get boring. But Jesus will never be bored with his people. On and on and on and on, as heaven unfolds and whatever that includes, we will constantly see a satisfied Savior. Out of the travail, of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. When the anguish is over, the satisfaction starts, and it will never end. Wonderful 
beyond words, isn't it? I read what this other man said about it. John Brown. What about this verse? What an exalted view does this representation give of the glory of that state of things which is to be the final result of the Messiah's travail of soul. It is to be so sufficient to satisfy his great soul, to meet all the requirements of his mighty mind, to gratify all the benevolence that is in his large heart. And what a view does it also give us of the benevolence of that heart? He is entirely satisfied. Bethlehem, Gethsemane, Calvary have left no regrets. He is satisfied. And satisfied forever. There was a German mystic called Terstegen. I don't know if you read his poetry, but it opens a new world. Just want to close by some of the things he wrote. Just four verses. Who is this who comes to meet me on the desert way? as the morning star foretelling God's unclouded day. He it is who came to win me on the cross of shame. In his glory, well I know him, evermore the same. Oh, the blessed joy of meeting all the desert past. Oh, the wondrous words of greeting, he shall speak at last. He and I together entering those bright courts above. He and I together sharing all the Father's love. Where no shade nor stain can enter, nor the gold be dim. In that holiness unsullied, I shall walk with him. Meet companion then for Jesus, from him, for him made. Glory of God's grace forever, there in me displayed. He who in the hour of sorrow bore the curse alone, I who through the lonely desert trod where he had gone. He and I in that bright glory one deep joy shall share, mine to be forever with him, his that I am there. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks for your word, which is not only a word from another world, but is a word that takes us to another world. And through your word, Through this ancient prophecy, we are taken right up to the throne of God as it is today, and we're the one on the throne, 
is addressed by the Heavenly Father, who says about the one he sees, that out of the anguish of his soul, he has been satisfied. Lord, help us to understand something of the reality of the satisfaction of the Savior and of how he is pleased with his people, the ones he died to save, and those who are going to be with him forever. He doesn't regard the price as something that was too high. Help us, Lord, to love him. And even before we get to the destination, that we would walk there with him day by day. So help us, Lord, to do that for your own name's sake. Amen. We can close by singing from Psalm 45. Sing Psalms. Psalm 45a, verses 13 to 17. And the tune is Belmont. In glorious gold embroidered robes, the princess, wait, the princess waits within. In richly ornamented clothes, she's brought before the king. Verses 13 to 17.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.